Hey everybody, I'm Michelle Daniluk, a professor of food microbiology at the University of Florida, and I'm with Chris Gunter. I'm a professor and vegetable production specialist from North Carolina State University. So welcome to our short series of podcasts uh, with the fantastic help we've put them together from AFTO. Uh, they're designed to cover the educational content we'd planned on sharing at the NASDA Produce Safety Consortium Educators pre-meeting workshop earlier this year in Denver. Uh, instead of trying to put uh, together a webinar or some other kind of online show to recreate the experiences we'd planned to provide at that workshop, we've decided on this short series of podcasts to have organic discussions with all of our presenters so that they can share their insights into some of the science and information behind some of our favorite topics in the produce safety rule. And our guest on this episode is from Rutgers University. He's an extension specialist in food science and a distinguished professor, uh, Dr. Don Schaffner. And Don is going to have some slides that he will refer to throughout the podcast, but we will make those slides uh, available to our listeners in our show notes. So Don, welcome. Oh, thanks, Chris and Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here. And we're so glad to have you here to talk today with us about some of the statistics behind sampling, um, GMs and STVs and water sampling. Cool, uh, let's, let's get into it. Yep, so, so Don, one of the things we often hear in produce safety and especially around some of the standards in the produce safety rule is that they're risk-based. Uh, and I think there's a little bit of a confusion out there about what this means and what it doesn't. So how would you describe risk-based? Wow, that's a really good question. So um, first of all, let me say that uh, just because someone says that something is risk-based doesn't really mean that it's actually risk-based, right? And so, but, but, I, but I think it is important to draw a distinction. And, and, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll riff a little bit here and I would encourage people to take a look at, at my slides uh, for a more um, succinct uh, presentation. So, I would say the the opposite of risk-based is hazard-based, right? And so let's talk a little bit about what is a risk and what is a hazard. So a hazard is something like salmonella or E. coli, or or if you're thinking um, in the, the, the world of HACCP, it's um, uh, having a, a fragment of metal or a piece of wood that can cause physical damage or or a chemical like, like an allergen or... Um, uh, excessive concentration of a cleaning chemical or a preservative or, or something like that. So, so a hazard-based approach focuses on the hazard and basically it says we need to eliminate the hazard. A risk-based approach in, con in contrast to that, when you say something is risk-based, what you're acknowledging, and I think, and I think you know, in principle, risk-based things are good, but what you're acknowledging when you say risk is now, instead of talking about yes and no, we're really talking about probabilities, right? So what's the probability that my irrigation water is going to contain a pathogen? And what are the measures that I can do, not necessarily to eliminate that risk, but to reduce that risk down to a manageable level or to an acceptable level? And then the other, the other thing that something is risk-based, uh, something which is risk-based does is it considers the severity. So if I have a risk-based system for, for managing risk and I'm, I'm worried about um, Clostridium botulinum 
and salmonella and norovirus, well, I'm going to manage those risks differently, right? Norovirus is certainly a significant risk, uh, but chances are if you're healthy, um, you're not going to die from norovirus. Um, if you uh, get salmonella, you're, you'll probably be okay, but you might die. And if you're, if you, if you're exposed to Clostridium botulinum toxin, um, there's a very significant chance that you're going to experience lifelong um, consequences from that. And so a risk-based system that is managing those three risks is going to choose to uh, do that differently. Uh, that's interesting. Um, talking about the hazard versus risk, can you, can you talk a little bit about that in terms of the uh, um, produce safety rule and maybe focus in a little bit on agricultural water within that? Yeah, and so I have to say, so I, I, I guess I nominally would consider myself uh, an expert on risk. Um, I'm, I'm not uh, an expert on ag water, although I have been asked to, to speak about it. And so, uh, you know, you guys, the two of you are, are much more knowledgeable in that area. But so if I, if I was going to, if I was going to sit down and think about like, how would I, um, how would I design um, a risk-based approach to thinking about ag water, I would consider a bunch of different things. And I have to say also, um, thanks, um, uh, thanks to Michelle for uh, getting me involved in a symposium uh, that was organized at last year's IAFP meeting. And, and, and many of the, the thoughts consider, um, where is the water coming from? Because we know that um, surface water is probably different um, than um, well water in terms of risk, where surface water is more likely to be contaminated and well water is less likely. Of course, if you have a contaminated well, um, or if you have a wellhead that's, that's near a source of contamination, you know, that, 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 that doesn't apply anymore. Um, uh, one, one big factor would be the irrigation method, right? So are you, are you directly applying the water to the edible part of the crop? Or are you using an, another method where you're using drip irrigation or, or something where, the, where the, the, the part of the crop that we eat is not directly exposed to the water? Um, third factor that I would think about is time to harvest. We know in the produce safety rule, there's, there's time to har harvest um, considerations, but uh, the reason for that is that microorganisms, um, if they're not supplied with a nutrient source of bacterial pathogens if they're not supplied with a nutrient source and they're sitting out in the environment being exposed to the elements uh, specifically ultraviolet radiation as well as desiccation stress from from heating uh, those organisms are going to die and so um, and again they're going to die at a certain rate and there's going to be factors that influence that rate but um, a if you use a contaminated water source shortly before harvest obviously the risk posed to the consumer is much greater than if you were to use that an identical water source um, uh, 60 days or 30 days, you know, 10 days before harvest. And, and so there's a time factor in there as well. Um, uh, the fourth factor that I would think about would be uh, post-harvest handling differences. So in fact, how, uh, how, is this, how is this product going to be handled? Is it going to be washed in some way? All of those things, uh, all of those things come into play as well. Um, and then, and then finally, the next uh, the next thing would be uh, commodity differences. Is this a commodity um, that is commonly uh, cooked, or is it is it commonly eaten raw? Uh, and and again, uh, is it a commodity that might uh, potentially 
be better able to, to trap the pathogen and make it more difficult to wash the pathogen off or make it less sensitive to uh, sanitizers. And so all, all of those things um, are, going to, are going to come into play. And again, I would encourage people who are listening to this, um, if you attended uh, the IAFP um, session, uh, if you attended the IAFP meeting, that means that you have access to all of the uh, presentations uh, that were presented there, and you can look up um, a couple of different talks uh, that are referenced in, in my slide set um, by a speaker at uh, the symposium uh, S49, as well as a technical talk T103. Um, and and those, uh, those two talks by those two individuals um, really did a nice job of breaking down what some of these different um, risk-based uh, approaches or risk-based thinking um, uh, around ag water um, would be important to consider. And certainly they have informed my opinions as well. So Don, I want to before we uh, get on to my next question, I want to I want to step back for a moment and talk a bit about um, risk-based and and components of it, or 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 different words around it, things like risk analysis or risk assessment <laughs> or risk management, uh, as different terms that that people might hear when we talk about making risk-based decisions. And if you can can sort of define and describe those for us. Yeah, so thanks, Michelle. That's that's a really important it's a really important point. So um, I would say that the and again, different people will uh, use these definitions differently. Um, we can get into trouble when the words get translated into other languages, but I'll, I'll define the terms as I commonly I commonly use them and as I think many people uh, commonly use them. So so the overall field is the field of risk analysis. And risk analysis is commonly um, conceptualized to uh, include three different areas. Those areas are risk assessment, risk management, and risk communication. So risk assessment deals with um, how big is the risk, what factors control the risk. So again, all of that is directly relevant to risk-based thinking about agricultural water. And, and generally speaking, risk assessment is a scientific process, right? It's based on scientific data. Uh, you may, if you're doing quantitative risk assessment, you may use some computer models as part of that process, but it's basically something that is done uh, by scientists um, uh, for the purpose of understanding what constitutes risk. Um, the second area I'll touch on briefly is risk communication. Um, and risk communication is basically how we talk about risk. Um, and there are folks, there are experts out there uh, that um, specifically um, 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 study this, this idea and they're social scientists or psychologists and they, they deal with how, how to best communicate um, with people um, about risks because often communication, you know, people's emotions come into play. Um, this, is, this has been very clear in the communications I've been doing around uh, COVID-19 and advising people on whether or not uh, it's appropriate to wash their groceries. People have some very, very strongly held opinions that might not really be based on science and understanding those opinions and those thoughts to try to craft a, a good communication message can, can really be a challenge. But, but I don't wanna talk too much more about that. And I wanna focus on the third, the third area of risk analysis, which is risk management. And risk management says, okay, now the risk assessors have defined the risk. They've told us about all these factors. We've communicated appropriately with our stakeholders. Um, what are we gonna actually do about this? 
and and I, I describe I would describe this as a practical process. Um, it's a political, like small p political process, and it deal and, and it deals with with trade offs. Um, so, for example, one solution, and I am not advocating this, but one solution um, for ag water uh, would be to require that all agricultural water uh, be retorted um, in, in cans, <laughs> giant cans to control Clostridium botulina, right? And then that water that we would apply to the field would be sterile water, right? Uh, that's, that's a great idea, um, but it's never going to work in, in, in terms of practicality. And so, so that's sort of one extreme solution. Um, um, which would be a very, very conservative, very cost-effective solution. And if we started doing that, um, we basically would, would not have agriculture um, as we know it um, today because it would be too expensive to grow anything. And so, uh, and then of course, at the other end of that continuum, um, we could say, well, you could just put whatever you want, um, uh, uh, whatever kind of water, whatever quality water you want, whenever you want, uh, in whatever way that you want, on whatever crops that you want, right? And that's, and that's clearly not acceptable either. And so trying to figure out like where between those two very, very, uh, and I've drawn them cartoonishly broad, right? But between those two broad extremes, where do you actually draw the line as to what should be the appropriate measures? That is a risk management process. And there's no, there's no amount of science that's going to tell you where you need to draw that line. And that, that line is based on practical considerations. Heck, there may be differences. Uh, we know, Michelle, because uh, you and I have studied it, right? There may be differences in the, the groundwater in um, Florida versus the groundwater in North Carolina versus the groundwater in New Jersey um, or the surface water in those three locations. And so, and what's the types of agriculture in, in those three locations. And so figuring out um, what the appropriate risk management thing to do is, 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 is that very, very sort of deliberative, deliberative and very complex process. And of course, I don't envy our FDA colleagues who had to craft these these uh, the produce safety rule regulations uh, basically trying to be a one size fits all or, or in many ways a one size fits all to this approach um, and again they've, they've offered some flexibility in, in some cases and they've been they've been receptive to, to feedback which is really good but but what I'm trying to say with this this long rambling answer is that you can do all the science you want and all the statistics you want and all the modeling you want but at the end of the day someone some risk manager somewhere um, who's probably not any of the three of us, some risk manager somewhere is going to have to make a decision about where, where to draw that line and say, okay, everything on this side of the line is okay and everything on that side of the line is, is not okay and, and, and then let's move forward with that. Yeah, and we talked to Chana Rock before we talked to you and she talked about that being, right, identifying what's an acceptable level of risk and that's kind of what you're talking about here, right, Dawn? Yep, exactly right. Yep, setting the line yes, of what that is. Yeah, and let, me, and let me say too, there are some people that have problems with acceptable level of risk, uh, and they'll say, well, there's no such thing as an acceptable level of risk, right? So sometimes you hear synonyms like tolerable level of risk. Um, and and, and, there, and so, so you may hear different synonyms, but basically people mean uh, the same thing when they use those different synonyms. So can you dive a bit deeper into agricultural water and, and the current rule? Uh, and what's what's proposed and and what's out there uh, in the rule? Um, say that again. Yeah, that was an awkward question and and broke. This is the first time I'm going to ask you to edit out a question. Let's let let me re-ask that question. Um, so Don, 
The, the rule requires a grower to collect data and to calculate a geometric mean and a statistical threshold value. Can you tell us a little bit about what those two different numbers are from a mathematical and statistical point of view? I will, I will do my best, Michelle. And I, I'm a guy who loves figures and I, I love to talk with my hands. And uh, being on an audio only podcast means that I can do neither of those things. But I will certainly point people um, to um, the show notes, which will contain um, my slides. Um, and, and I'm specifically here looking at um, slide number nine, which is entitled geometric means and statistical threshold values. Okay. And so and again, there's there's a there's a great um, there's a great um, uh, diagram there. But basically, you it's helpful to to sort of say, well, instead of using these complicated terms like GM and STV, what do they what do they mean? Okay, so so and, and I'll and I'll use I'll use those abbreviations GM and STV because I, I think it helps the the conversation flow a little bit better. Okay, so so GM means the average on a log scale okay so it is a typical value of um of something right and in this case we're talking about water but it could really be of, of anything right and in this particular case it's generic e coli um in terms of colony forming units per 100 ml and so so the the the, the gm gives sort of tells you the same sort of thing that an average tells you Okay, but it's important to realize that that often in risk, the risks don't come from the averages, right? The risks come from the tails of the distribution, and they come from the the higher tails, right? And so, if we have some measure of the the central tendency or the average concentration of E. coli, um, that's great. But what that average doesn't reveal to us is well, how bad is it likely to be on a really bad day, okay? And that's where the STV comes in. And so STV basically measures the variability um, and it can enable you to say, okay, what's my high range value? Uh, in other words, what's my 90th percentile value for, for in this case, uh, generic E. coli counts? And so if we know those two things, um, uh, we know the GM, which gives us our central tendency, and we know our STV, which gives us our, our outlier, then uh, if, we, if we sort of steer those, if we, if we establish some parameters to steer those two things or manage those two things within a certain range, um, then we know that we're going to be okay. Okay, or, or compliant with uh, compliant with the recommendations. And Don, so if when you're thinking about that calculation, uh, how do they decide what is the appropriate amount of testing for this surface water? You know, current sample numbers are from the FDA are 20 samples. Some growers. Uh, um, based on cost may want that number to be much lower um, and others looking at that data say that 20 samples may not be enough to get a representative sample. So how do we decide that based on science? Well, let, let me, that's a good question, Chris. Let me refer you back to an earlier comment, right? You're not going to decide that based on science, right? What you're going to do is you're going to look at the available science and then that's going to inform you maybe where you ought to be in terms of that. And so um, there is there is no amount of science that's going to tell you what the right number is, right? So FDA has done their their best to say, well, you know, we think 
from a risk management point of view, we think that 20 tests is the right number of tests. Um, uh, and again, we can maybe, if you guys want to get into it, there's a couple of uh, papers um, that I think sort of have injected a higher level of science into our discussions, right? Uh, one is a paper from uh, 2017 in the Journal of Food Protection by Ari, Ari Havilar and colleagues, uh, and another one by uh, Truett and, and colleagues. Uh, uh, basically, this is a, a, a publication out of Laura Strawn's lab uh, at Virginia Tech that was published in the Journal of Food Protection in uh, 2018. Um, and, and again, um, some with some overlap from the Havilar article authors as well. And basically look at um, different um, uh, different data to say, okay, is what what's the right number? So, so but as long as we as long as we all agree to start with, there's no there's no science is going to tell us what the right number is, but it might tell us, you know, if we're in the right ballpark. So yeah, let's can you talk through those two different papers for us, Don, and maybe you know, I agreed they can't tell us what the right number is, but they can maybe give insights into um, into what the risk would be with the current number of samples taken. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, so let's so let's do that. And again, um, I would encourage people um, to take a look at the slide set, uh, which is in show notes. And I'll, I'll walk you through um, my interpretation of the Havilar paper, which I think is at least when I when I presented it at IAFP in 2019, it was pretty good. Um, because because Dr. Havilar himself came up to me afterwards and said, "Hey, you know, I think you explained that better than we did in the paper." So, so that that actually meant meant a lot to me, and so uh, I I, uh, I still think about that whenever I think about uh, this presentation. So it's uh, it kind of warms my heart a little bit. So um so basically what they what they asked in that in that manuscript was they had data from six ponds, and they asked the question, um, "Would if if we if we have we have this." real world data right we've got we've actually got um, um, 90 samples right from from these ponds and then they asked the question well what if we didn't have those 90 samples what what if we only had um, 10 sets of 20 random samples or we had five sets of 20 evenly spaced in time samples um, would would those would those samples tell us about the the universe the population the 90 samples um and would gm and stv actually work in the way that they were supposed to work right and so what they did was they evaluated the ratio of the estimates right and remember the estimates are based on 20 samples because that's what what the rule says right the, what's the the ratio of the estimates to quote unquote the truth, which in this case is 90 samples. Now what we also have to realize is that the truth is probably not 90 samples, right? The truth is an infinite number of samples from those ponds. But let's let's say for the sake of discussion that, that 90 samples is, is good enough to represent the truth. Now let's um, hang on, let's if, let's say that because in my mind I just had some terrible <laughs> infinite um, memories from awful math classes that were calculus at different Sam points in my life. Sample until the water is all gone. Yes. Well let's you not. know Chris, this is what I often tell people in the fresh produce industry. If you want to be sure the product is safe, you just have to test all of it. And then it, even if it wasn't safe, you'll be, you'll be safe because there won't be anything left to sell. Exactly. <laughs> except, except you'll have nothing to eat. So, sorry. Well, but, but here's the thing. If I, if I had, if I had the testing contract for that, um, I think I would, I think I would just uh, take all that money and then, and then go, um, I don't know, open a restaurant or something. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Okay. Let's, uh... Enough, enough. Enough silliness. Um, this is a serious podcast. Um, so, 
Um, so, so again, so, so we've got we've got the 90 samples, which we're going to say represents the truth. We've got the 20 samples, which we're going to say um, is, is our estimate. And then if the ratio between the 20 samples and the 90 samples is about one, then that estimate is going to be good. Um, if that number is less than one, that means that our estimate will underestimate the risk. And if it's greater than one, it means that it's overestimating the risk. So ideally, what we'd like is for those things to, to actually stack up perfectly and for them to always match and always be one. And uh, again, if you're, if you're following along in the slide set, um, slide number 11 um, is entitled STV and GM ratios. And, and basically, this is just a, a straight um, um, uh, copy and paste from the Havilar paper. Um, and on one side of the slide, I have the STV values um, for the six different ponds. And on the, uh, the, the right-hand side of the slide, we have, I have the, the GM values um, um, for the six ponds. And, 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 and then there's, there's, there's red uh, dotted lines that are vertical, um, indicating a ratio of one. And so ideally, what you would like to see is you'd like to see no bars to the left of one, and no bars to the right of one, and then all of the samples stacked up in a giant bar sitting right at the level of one. And, and if you look, unfortunately, if you look at the, the figure um, or the, the slide from the slide set, that's not the case, right? In some cases, the STV ratios are below one. In some cases, they're above one. And it doesn't matter. And they're different for the, different, the six different pods, right? And so, um, and there's really no you look at those, they're kind of a little bit of a, uh, in, in three of the ponds or maybe four of the ponds, it's kind of a, of a, a skewed distribution with, a, with a, a high on the left-hand side and tailed on the right-hand side. But for a couple of the other ponds, it's not, right? So, so pond four and pond three um, look very different, whereas pond one, pond two, and pond six look similar. Pond five looks kind of similar to those as well. So what's, what that's saying is that STV is not, not, a perfect, uh, not a perfect risk measure. And then if you look for GM, again, you would want the same thing, right? You would want um, all of the, the, the GM ratio values to be stacked up uh, on a ratio of one. And if it's less than, we, want, we don't want to see any bars for less than one. We don't want to see any bars for, for more than one. And again, if you, look, if you look on the slide, what you see is that, yeah, generally, I mean, it's, it's pretty good. Like, like the, 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 most, the, the, the median, uh, right, the most common value is, is one. So, so it's pretty good. But in some cases, you're going to underestimate, in some cases, you're going to overestimate, or, or you're going to be, the ratio is going to be above or below. So in some, so in some cases, you're, you're underestimating the risk, and in some cases, you're overestimating the risk. So I, I guess maybe the good news, part of the good news of all of that is that um, we're not systematically overestimating or systematically underestimating but we we this does we do this does reflect that guess what in some cases we we are um we are not going to we are not going to to correctly estimate the risk which is honestly kind of what i expected right i mean you know i mean these are imperfect measures and the good news is is that they're not terrible uh the bad news is that they're not perfect Right, uh, but but again, they're they're better than nothing. We could argue about what the values could be. We could argue about you know ways to make them better. But but it's not uh, again, not, it's not completely good news, but it's not completely bad news either. So how did the Truett the Truett data compare to that? 
Well, that's a good question. So they they analyzed it in a different way, and they and so we'll, let's so let's talk about that. But before we before we talk about um, the, the Truett paper, I do I do want to to offer maybe what I what I saw as uh, and I, I talked about that that the Havilar paper is some good news and some bad news. Um, there is there is one figure um, from from the Havilar paper that I would say represents to me maybe some some pretty good news, um, and and that's uh, that's a slide. Um, slide 12 in my slide set, which is entitled Some Good News, question mark. And this is a plot of the probability of salmonella as a function of E. coli in MPN per 100 mils, but which also includes data on turbidity. And, and so basically what this is saying is if we use E. coli in MPN and we use some sort of a turbidity factor that that those two factors together um, actually give us a pretty good indication of the probability that salmonella would be there. And so what this says is that the more E. coli in your water and the more turbid your water, the higher the chance that you're gonna have salmonella in that water. And again, here we're talking about probabilities. It's not absolute, it's not a guarantee that you're gonna find salmonella in that water, okay, but it is some pretty good news. So, so again, if I was a, a risk manager, I would say, okay, so we know that generic E. coli and turbidity inform the probability of finding salmonella, so let's figure out what our E. coli parameters and, uh, and what our turbidity parameters are going to be, um, and then let's design our, uh, our program around that. Okay, so that's that's the that's the last I'll say about about Havilar. Um, yeah, can I just? So yeah, go ahead. Yeah, let me ask a question about that. And I'm I'm looking at that figure because I do have your slides open as we as we talk. Um, and I I you know, but that that's true for these six ponds that Havilar looked at, right? I don't know if we could draw the conclusion that that same good news would be true for every water source across the U.S. Oh, that, that's thank you, Michelle. That's an excellent that's an excellent clarification. And let me and let me say too. And this this whole idea this gives me a chance to pontificate on one of my favorite subjects, which is indicator organisms, right? And so, one of the things um, that I've seen, and, and I, I I was not part of the authorship of any of these papers, but I have analyzed large data sets looking at whether indicators indicate anything. And these have not been ag water data sets, but I think that I've seen enough to, to say that there's some, some truth uh, to, to, what, to what I'm about to say. And that is that if you have to manage risk for a particular stream of product, whether that's uh, ground beef um, that's going into the school lunch program, or whether that's indicators um, in agricultural water, or whether that is um, surface sanitation indicators in a food processing plant. Um, there will be differences, right? And so those six, your, your point about the six ponds is very good. Um, I would also say that, that but, but, but the, the good news is that let's say that those were the six ponds that I plan on using to irrigate my crop. Well, I've now got some pretty good data that show how I would manage the risk from that. Now, the, the, the bad news is I've got to spend a lot of time collecting that baseline data for salmonella and for um, uh, generic uh, E. coli and for turbidity and all of that. But once I've characterized that stream, um, that, that stream of product or that stream of water, now I can begin to make some decisions around that. Now, of course, that's gonna, that, those, that, those patterns are not going to hold true um, for all ponds in the world or even maybe even all ponds in Florida, right? But uh, the good news is, is that if we, if we define the problem um, 
um, narrowly enough, uh, we can we can probably get some some good news. So yeah, but you're absolutely right to to call out the limitations of this as really only applying to those six ponds. Okay, I'll let you talk about Truett now. Okay, thank you. Um, so. Um, so uh, in this particular uh, paper, what they did was they took one liter water samples from 20 agricultural ponds over two growing seasons, 2015 and 2016. Um, they looked at, they looked for total aerobic bacterial count, total coliforms, and then E. coli, uh, which they, uh, which they all, well, they enumerated all of those things. They also took 250 ml samples and they enriched for salmonella. So they get that, that gave them a yes, no answer for salmonella. Um, and what they discovered was that 17 of the 20 ponds met the uh, FISMA uh, produce safety rule standards for ag water, um, and three of the ponds did not. And the three ponds that did not, did not do so because the STV value exceeded the limit. Okay, and so so that's that's interesting, an interesting observation, right? That the, the reason was the STV value, not the GM value. Um, and they, they also detected salmonella in 19% of the water samples each year. Um, so um, if you, again, if you, I'll refer people to my slides, which are in show notes on slide 14, which has the results from Truett et al. And what they did here was they said, um, let's make an equation. Okay, and that equation is going to predict the probability of salmonella. So this is, again, very much like the, uh, um, the turbidity plot that we were just talking about for the Havilar paper, right? So what's the probability of salmonella um, as a function of E. coli in MPN per 100 mils, okay? And then let's look at that for the, the different, uh, the different um, farms, okay? And so um, what, what you can see if you look at that figure um, uh, from the, the Truett paper is that for two of the farms, farm E and farm C, um, those farms have elevated levels of probability of salmonella as a function of E. coli per ml relative to farm A, okay? And, and they did a little bit of digging, which I think was, was, was really good. They made some observations about farm C and farm E, in particular, that those farms, uh, C and E, had um, uh, culls that is you know product that was not suitable for sale that were culled and these particular farms were storing those culls near some ponds now of course um, the culls themselves were, were not causing problems for the ponds but if you have uh, agricultural culls uh, you know briskly product just sitting there it's going to attract problems, uh, namely in the form of birds and, and, in, the form of, and in the form of rodents and so what this is saying is okay, Yes, if you look at the, the curves for all of the, the, uh, the, the six farms that they studied, um, they all have a relationship between E. coli and MPN per ml um, and salmonella, right? And so as E. coli goes up, probability of salmonella goes up. So that's, that's good news, right? Like that, that's pushing the probabilities in the direction that we want. It's consistent with the findings from the Havilar paper, okay? But what it also says is that there may be situationally specific factors, i.e. having a big pile of culled product sitting near a pond that you're going to use for irrigation that will 
over and above increase your risk or your probability of finding salmonella. And so the baseline levels for those uh, for those two farms were significantly higher than the baseline levels or the, you know, the, the low way, you know, what's the probability when you have low levels of E. coli um, for farm A. And so again, it's not a perfect solution. It, again, to just to, to, to again, um, you know, point out the point that you made earlier, Michelle, um, this is only for these farms, but, but again, the good news is we're seeing a pattern here, which, and the pattern is generally speaking that um, the more E. coli you have, the higher the risk of salmonella, um, but you have to be alert for local situational things that, that may also impact that, that correlation. And Don, this is a, this is a super interesting discussion and I'm, I'm really curious Based on your experience, you know, if you had to make that risk management decision about how much to test, how do you make that call? Um, and knowing that there is a cost to this testing. Yeah, well, I mean, the short answer, Chris, is um, that's above my pay grade. Uh, I am a risk assessor. I am not a risk manager. Um, if I was a risk manager, I would be be uh, paid uh, a lot more money, and I would probably not sleep as well at night. So, um, uh, but but I, I think that the answer that's that's the, that's the the humorous flip answer. I think the more complicated answer is well. Um, let's look, let's, let's sit down and let's actually get into the details, right? What are my, what are my testing costs, right? What are, what are my costs, um, that I'm spending on testing? Uh, uh, what, what if I were to double that? What if I were to use larger sample volumes? What if I could use, what if I could do some, some concentrating? The nice thing about water, um, is that you can actually concentrate it. Um, and, and so you don't like with, with food, we're, we're stuck with a 25 gram sample or a 375 gram sample and we've got to do enrichment. Um, and it's, it's messy, but you can take a liter of water and you could you could filter that right and then you could just look at the what whatever you retained on that filter and so I would take a good hard look at what my costs were and then I would take a look at what um, the cost of foodborne disease might be um, what would the cost of a recall be um, and then sit down and say okay like like this is what I'm spending on testing right now um, what would happen you know and then how reliable is my testing like what fraction of positives and you know what what fraction of product that I'm shipping out might actually contain E. coli and at this point if I'm having this discussion in a, in a, in a, in a boardroom um, and if there's a lawyer present the lawyer is going to immediately shut down the conversation and they're going to say we can't talk about that because our product will never contain salmonella um, we just simply can't allow it and that, at that point you just say well okay let's let's find a way to get the lawyer out of the room so we can actually have this conversation right um, so I think, and that's only that's only uh, partially in jest. I've been on at least one one phone call where um, the lawyer uh, politely asked me to leave the phone call and, and to not come back. Um, but I think we have to talk about this. We have to talk about what's the probability that our product will contain salmonella. And again, this is I'm lucky that I'm an academic. I don't I don't actually make product that <laughs> that contains salmonella. But if, but if I did, I would look hard at what my testing costs were. I would look hard at the consequences of shipping a product that was positive, either in terms of recalls or in terms of of, of my exposure for foodborne disease and uh, I would I would sit down and, and try to and try to balance that as best I could um, I don't want to spend too much on testing but I don't want to make people sick I don't want to have recalls either so the devil's in the details there so Don we've shared a lot of information and we're getting getting near the end of our time um, where do we go from here what what what's next where do we go from here Oh boy, I don't know, Michelle. Um, that might be above my pay well, grade as well. Hang on, I, 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 I know we go for a drink from here, but other than that, where do we go from here? 
Oh, oh, well, Michelle, you're, you're very nicely pointing me to my slide, my last slide, which says, where do we go from here? So I, uh, I am. I, 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 that's, that's well done. So what I will say is in the meantime, um, do take a look at the two slides that come before that. Um, there's a really interesting paper um, from Risk Analysis that was published in 1995 looking at uh, cost to save a life um, uh, for, for different uh, life-saving interventions. Uh, I will say uh, one of the things that FDA was asked to do, and they're always asked to do every time they come out with a new rule, is they're, they're asked to do an economic analysis. And FDA estimates that the, uh, the, 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 the cost of testing is about $37 million per year, um, uh, where the cost to a single farm is about $1,000 and change per year. Uh, but FDA also says that this will, uh, that if the testing is implemented, this will result in a reduction of uh, $477 million in terms of cost of foodborne illness, which definitely puts it in the effective column in terms of cost of, uh, of life saved. And so, again, I encourage people to take a look at that, uh, that old paper from risk analysis, which talks about um, lots of different ways that people can, can lose their life um, 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 uh, and, and what it would cost to save them in 1993 dollars. Um, where do we go from here? Well, uh, I think that there's a couple of, of key take home messages, right? So we know that risk differs by water source, by delivery method, and by application method. And so if you're following risk-based thinking, um, you, should, you should follow that, right? So, so consider that as you think about your, 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 your uh, use of agricultural water. Um, we know uh, that their intelligent testing can reduce risk, right? And so risk-based thinking says, hey, um, let's use that information. Um, and then finally, um, you know, observation can tell you stuff, right? Like, so from the Truett paper, uh, they found that, uh, hey, guess what? Cull piles near ag water sources are risky. And so the common sense says, let's just use this, right? Um, and, and again, um, we might have one high uh, microbial count, um, but even that one high count might be telling you something. And so pay attention. Like when you're, when, like I love, there's a wonderful quote by uh, um, uh, my good friend, who's maybe not a good friend of the people who listen to this, uh, Bill Marler, he's a lawyer. Um, and, and, and one of the things that Bill says, if you're collecting data and you're not doing anything with it, you're not really collecting data, you're collecting evidence, which will be discovered during the discovery phase of a lawsuit. And so collect data by all means, but look at that data and find way, ways to use that data. And then I would also say, remember our earlier discussion about risk assessment versus risk management, there's no such thing as safe and so try as much as you can as you think about this. Think about ways to reduce risk and get out of this black and white, you know, safe, unsafe thinking, right? It's, there's, there is no such thing as safety, but there is a, such a thing as reducing risk. And so do your best uh, wherever you can to make decisions that will overall reduce risk and try to, again, pick the low-hanging fruit first, right? What are the easy, low-cost things that I can do that give me the greatest bang for my buck in terms of reduction in risk? And then finally, I would say uh, be proactive, right? Like that, we know that the, the refinements to the produce safety rule around ag water and FDA are coming. Um, but don't wait for FDA to tell you what to do. Figure out what you need to do to for yourself to be able to sleep at night. And obviously, pay attention to what FDA is doing and saying. But but don't be afraid to get out in front of FDA and manage the risk because ultimately, it is your it is your risk. If you if you are an ag producer, it is your risk to to manage. Oh, great, Don. Well, we're almost out of time, and I just want to follow up and ask if there's any adv parting advice you have for our listeners as we wrap up. 
Wow. Um, what would I say? Well, um, uh, don't be afraid to read the literature. Don't be afraid to reach out um, uh, to experts and ask for help. And then finally, uh, Chris, in, in a bit of a, a shameless plug for my own podcast that I do, I would encourage people to, 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 to subscribe, if you're not subscribing already, to a wonderful podcast called Food Safety Talk uh, that I do with Ben Chapman. That's foodsafetytalk.com. And then we also recently started doing another podcast um, uh, called Risky or Not, um, which you can find at riskyornot.co. Um, that's another podcast that I also do with Ben Chapman. And that, that's a short form podcast and it really focuses on a, a particular microbiological or, or food um, risk or food uh, activity that might be risky or not. And, and Ben and I, um, instead of giving our usual waffling, well, it's complicated and it depends answers. We have to give a concrete answer whether something's risky or not. So if you like the sound of my voice, if you like uh, people talking about risk, uh, uh, I would encourage people to check out both of those podcasts. Well, thanks, Don, for spending time with us today and sharing all this fantastic information. I agree. Oh. We can't thank you enough, Don. Oh, thanks, you guys. This was a real pleasure. It, it, it was a lot of fun to do. Uh, I, just, I just lament the fact that uh, we couldn't meet in person. Uh, unfortunately, thanks to COVID-19, uh, we couldn't meet in person and, and get to, uh, to socialize and to talk uh, about, uh, about this. And, and I, could, I couldn't get questions from the audience, but hopefully this podcast will be the next best alternative. And I, thanks to, uh, thanks to um, all of you guys at NASDA uh, and APTO and, and, and whatnot who are organizing these podcasts and making all this happen. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing that you're doing. And I look forward to listening to some of the other podcasts that are part of this series. And for our listeners out there, we do hope that this helped you understand some of the science behind different aspects of the produce safety rule. And you'll find the links to all the referenced materials that Don mentioned um, during the show in our show notes. And if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to Michelle or I or Don directly, if that's all right with you, Don. Oh, absolutely. I would be happy to talk with anybody that wants to talk about this stuff. Perfect. Uh, and as we mentioned initially, uh, it's our intent to share the content that we developed for that NASDA Produce Safety Consortium's Educator Pre-Meeting Workshop. Uh, and we can't thank AFTO and NASDA enough uh, for the support they provided us to pull these together. And if you enjoyed the content and the format, please do let us, AFTO, and NASDA know. And if there are other topics you'd like to hear on in the future, or if you'd like to hear more from Don on risk or agricultural water, or uh, any of the other things he's uh, fond of talking about on his podcast, please do let us know, um, either in this media or uh, at the next NASDA Consortium Educators pre-meeting workshop. Thanks so much. Thank you, everybody, and we'll talk to you next time.